electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Time to play offense. That's the big argument today from one of our guests. But how long can that strategy work when the economy is slowing? We'll ask with Red and the markets today. Plus, all eyes on Disney ahead of their results tonight. What's the plan now that Iger's back at the helm? We'll ask one of the biggest bulls on the street what he does and doesn't want to hear and why he thinks the stock should rally 40% from here. And on a day where investors are giving Google's AI efforts a solid D, just wait till you hear about this story. We have an expert claiming this technology can actually help kids more than hurt them in the realm of education. Khan Academy's Saul Khan is here to make his case for using AI on his platform and in the classroom. But first, today's markets with Dom Chu. Dom, how are we looking? We're looking. So on that AI trade, I'm going to show you how much billions it's, going, it's costing the market Crazy. right now in just a, a second here. But uh, it's red across the board. Maybe not a surprise given the nice rally that we saw yesterday to give some of that back today. But it's been fractional for the most part for the major indices. The Dow Industrial is down about 100 points, one-third of 1%. The S&P is down about two-thirds of 1%. Now three-quarters, 33 points, 41.30. Uh, just to give you a context again of the trading range so far today, at the highs of the session, we were still down but eight points, and we were down about 51 at the lows. So that's the trading range so far, tilting more towards the bottom end of that range right now. The Nasdaq composite, 11,956, down about 150. 58 points, one and one-third percent declines there. And again, I'll get to the reason why on that AI trade in just a moment. But one place that's not seeing as much of that downside momentum these days has been in the financials and specifically insurance. We've talked a lot about the insurance companies that have been hitting record highs as of late. If you look at Progressive Corp today, it's up about 28% over the course of the last year. It, by the way, gets a gold star because it hit a record high in trading today. Also, the Spider S&P Insurance ETF, ticker KIE, is up about 7% in that time. It also hit a record high in trading today. So watch those insurance stocks, again, showing some of that upside relative momentum to the rest of the market. And now let's get to that reason why the Nasdaq, the tech heavier trade is down so big right now. Alphabet shares down about 8%. That's off its session lows, believe it or not. It's still down about 28% over the course of the last year. And as Kelly points out, the AI trade very much playing out here. Uh, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, releases their own AI technology and their, their own AI chatbot called BARD today. Now, some investors are not as enamored with that effort from Alphabet. That's leading to some of these declines right now. So Alphabet, and by the way, Kelly, because of that 8% decline in the shares, we've now shaved roughly $112 billion wow. off the market value of Alphabet in one day. That's how big of a deal it is when Alphabet loses oh. 8% of its value. And by the way, for context, Kelly, yeah. $110 billion, $112 billion is roughly like losing the entire market cap of a BlackRock just because of this move today. Incredible. All because they couldn't answer what new discoveries did the James Webb telescope make that I can tell my night. Or they answered the wrong answer. I'm not going to pin it all on that particular (laughs) response, but I will say that some traders and investors found it a little bit underwhelming, the presentation there. We'll have much more on that in a little while. Dom, thanks. And in fact, come on over for our next chat here. Several Fed members are weighing in today on the plan to keep hiking rates as inflation starts to come down. New York Fed President John Williams says any future rate cuts would be in response to 
lower inflation. While Fed Governor Lisa Cook says the strong January job gains indicate a soft landing is still possible. And my next guest is playing offense in this environment. Joining me now is Sandy Villery, partner and portfolio manager at Villery & Company. It's good to see you again, Sandy. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. So this, are you playing, let's let's call it um, kind of desperation offense here, kind of an onsides kick, let's scramble and hope we can recover and, 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 and kind of come back before the game ends? Or do you truly think uh, that people who are bulls have a decent shot at a, at a decent rally here? Well, interesting. I'm a Saints fan, so in the Super Bowl, we saw one of the better onside kicks in history. So uh, I don't know if I'd go with that. But basically, uh, you know, we're in that seasonally strong period for the market, you know, that kind of runs November through May. Uh, last year was really tough for growth stocks, over down over 30%. Value was down only 2 or 3%. So everybody was hiding in large cap dividend value stocks. We just think you ought to be fishing in the growth pond. And, uh, you know, basically last year, the market really discounted uh, the future rate hikes as, as NASDAQ and tech stocks tend to, you know, move inversely to rate hikes. And I think that was, uh, you know, that, that, that showed up. I mean, eight, eight hikes later, uh, here we are. And so I think you know, the market's an amazing discounting mechanism. And now it's, it's sort of telling you, based on what the 10-year Treasury's doing, going down from four and a quarter to roughly a 365 or wherever we are today, that rates are going lower long, over the long run. So we feel optimistic that we can buy growth stocks and, uh, and and try to find some some discounted names. Yeah, and also you think, as you were saying, but that value is a crowded trade now, that people should go back and maybe look at kind of growth and technology. Um, you, know, you focus more on the small cap side of things, but I mean, would you extend that to, to mega cap tech, tech, theoretically speaking? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's gonna be one of these years that's, uh, that active managers are gonna do quite well. I mean, you can see the difference between Microsoft and, and Alphabet uh, I, I think it matters. We're looking at different you know, earnings that are coming out, Chipotle, not so good, Uber, very good. Um, and so I think uh, people have really got to you know, peel back the onion and, and really focus on picking individual stocks. But I do think in general, um, growth should outperform uh, value you know, in 2023, which we've seen already this year, up yeah. about you know, 14% versus you know, up about 3%. It makes you wonder, Dom, and I'm glad you highlighted it, what's been going on with the insurance companies. Sure. What an amazing trade, all-time highs. You know, that, that was your hot ticket, but are, are these conditions about to reverse? Uh, so, so that's the big key right now, is, is that to Sandy's point, we've already seen a huge amount of outperformance in those growth names, the ones that got shuttered basically back in 2012 or 2022. If you take a look at the reasons why, there's a muscle memory factor possibly at play here. For the better part of 10 to 12 years now, arguably, since the post-great financial crisis, there's been this kind of reaction to want to go and buy mega cap, large cap technology exactly. and media type, telecom type stocks. And, and so what you're seeing right now is this kind of maybe falling back. I'm not going to call them bad habits or good habits. They're just habits. People have just been doing it for so long. I mean, Tesla, you see a relapse. Yeah, you do, but Tesla shares are up like 13 out of the last 14 days. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big momentum trade right now. So if it were to keep going, it would need more fuel, fundamentally speaking. For in it to in other going. words, real quick, Sandy, because I want to get over to Rick here in a second. But do mm -hmm. you think the growth has already had its big kind of snapback uh, rally here to Dom's point? I think a lot of those mega, mega cap uh, growth names certainly have. And, and when you look at the valuation some, on some things, uh, it sort of reminds me of the nifty 50 stocks, you know, back in the 70s, where you could have Amazon continue to have higher earnings 
uh, for example, and, and have the stocks kind of go nowhere for five, six, seven years. Hmm. That's sort of the camp I'm in, and I'd rather be in smaller mid-cap growth names that have the ability to outperform. So yeah. that's, where, that's where we are. Let me circle back to that in a second. We just had a 10-year note auction uh, that went quite well, actually, with these higher yields. Let's get to Rick Santelli for more details. Rick? Yeah, once again, a stellar auction. I'll give you all the nitty-gritty. We're talking 35 billion 10-year notes. The Dutch auction yield, 3.613. The one issue, Marco, is trading around 364. Definitely stopped through by three basis points-ish, which means lower yield, higher price. If you're selling securities, high price is nirvana, isn't it? The metrics are stellar. 2.66 bid to cover the best since February of last year. 79.5 on indirect. Seriously, I have a 20-year uh, uh, database. There's nothing close to this. That could be an all-time big in terms of indirect bidders. And if we look at the direct bidders, it's the only fly in the ointment. It's a bit under the 18% 10 auction average at 15.2. But dealers at 5.4%. I've never seen a smaller amount. So the buffet table was cleared by investors. The dealers took back hardly any. If you look at the intraday chart, we dropped very quickly to 363, 362 and change. And all I can say is, is that who would lend Uncle Sam their money for 10 years for this yield, 3.613? I don't see a lot of hands going up. However, if you thought rates were most likely going to be going down over the next year or so, Maybe this is what you would buy to see so many auctions. This one included lately, Kelly, where the demand is so strong. We could tell investors, well, I don't think they're on the same page as the Fed. Just my opinion. Back to you. <laughs> Thank you, Rick. Don, your reaction? Uh, so, I mean, I would say this. I mean, there was a point in, in history when a lot of folks looked at that indirect bid. 80% of roughly huge thereabouts. Number. That's huge. But that's also a proxy for foreign central bank buying, right? And so if there is, to Rick's point, this idea that rates are headed lower, there might be large and very large, possibly sovereign institutional buyers who are finding value at current levels for 10-year sure. yields. Think about the Japanese, for instance. That's been a big source of the discussion. Sandy, are you in the soft landing camp here in general? Uh, yeah, I, I do think we have a bit of a soft landing. And I, I think it kind of happens third quarter of 2023, um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I might get a little bit more defensive as we get back in, you know, into the uh, third quarter of the year. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm more of a soft landing. The jobs numbers are too strong. One point nine jobs available for every one looking. Uh, it just seems like, you know, things are uh, th things are still doing uh, quite well. And that, that's an interesting auction just now. Um, it just kind of shows you that you know, people are willing to lock in those low rates. You know, we had the old uh, Tina. There is no alternative to equities. Well, now there kind of is, you know, versus the one point six percent yield on the S&P 500. Now you can get a decent yield, you know, uh, that long out, looking out 10 years. So sure. interesting. And I just want to mention um, some of the stocks that you like here. Freeport, McMoran, obviously the copper play on semi Caesars Entertainment. So just if, what, what would you say to the argument that uh, it always looks like a soft landing at first, Sandy, that, um, you know, just because we see a slowing doesn't mean we're not going to face a sharper fall, especially if the Fed keeps hiking here. Yeah. So uh, Powell's just got to be so careful, right? I mean, he's got to he's got to just sort of Watch out for inflation, you know, um, and, and just, you know, not send us into some uh, deep, deep recession. So uh, the worst would be is if he, um, you know, kind of uh, cut too soon and all of a sudden we have uh, inflation comes back. Right. We've gone from seven, one to six, five from November, December. Imagine if inflation went the other way. That wouldn't be uh, very good for anything. So I know he's got a, a tough balancing act to do. 
Uh, but hopefully we're in the uh, the final stages of what uh, what his rate hikes uh, look like ultimately. Dom, quick final word here. I would say that if you want to look at that soft landing scenario, there's a number of strategists on Wall Street who are now taking down their expectations for a recession, right? Yeah, so, like Goldman. That was Goldman a big did. one this week. I think, was it yesterday, the day before? Only have 25% odds. I would just leave you with that street. thought. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it there uh, to your point. Sandy Villery, Dom Chu, thank you guys very, very much. Let's turn now to the big earnings story of the day. Disney up after the bell, and the only Dow come Component to report this week. It's also the first report with Bob Iger back as CEO. And since last report, shares are up about 12%. Pretty nice. My next guest sees the stock going even higher from here to 130. He's got one of the highest price targets on the street. It's at 112 right now. Let's bring in Cut Gunmaral, RBC Capital Markets Analyst, along with our own Julia Borston. Welcome to both of you. Cut Gun, let me start with you. What, are the, what is the expectation, whisper-wise, going into this afternoon? Expectations high or low, you think? Sure, I think they're pretty high. I mean, for the quarter, always, as always, there'll be a lot of attention on the performance with streaming, particularly around Disney Plus net ads, and how much of a churn issue there may be following the recent price increases, as well as the progress with getting to profitability in 2024. And of course, an update on trends across the theme parks and whether or not the strong momentum we've seen over the last year or so can be sustainable, even with some pockets of softening across the consumer. That said, we expect results will take a backseat to management's updated strategic and operational visions right. following Bob Iger's return and, and the ongoing box, uh, proxy battle with Tryon. So a big focus on, you know, what is the true earnings power of Disney? How will Disney's approach to Disney Plus content spend evolve in the coming years? And to me, most importantly, what does Bob Iger think about how aggressively Disney has flexed its pricing power hmm. over the last year? So a lot to listen to, though, particularly with the activist involvement, it's hard not to, it's hard to imagine that Disney will not lay out a foundation for a stronger path ahead. Yeah, Julia, one of the, you know, as far as I'm concerned, one of the big fun questions for Disney, maybe not so fun for them to constantly grapple with, but are they or aren't they a sports company? In other words, what's the future of ESPN? Um, what are some of the strategic alternatives? And, and how much is Bob Iger likely to worry about this as being one of the main ways that he sets out his vision for Disney at this point? Well, I think that this earnings call is going to be much less about the actual results from this past quarter and much more about the restructuring that Iger indicated was in the works right after he took the helm as CEO. Again, he appointed this committee, um, some senior leadership in addition to himself, including CFO Christine McCarthy, Dana Walden, who runs the TV division, Alan Bergman, who runs the film studio, and Jimmy Pintaro, who's in charge of ESPN, and said, these are the people who are going to help me figure out how to restructure the company. And I think in terms of succession, the big question is, does he take any of these four people and put them in a position that's like a COO position that would set them up to potentially succeed him. And I think there's a big focus on succession, not just from Nelson Peltz, but also um, from investors as well. And so I think that's going to be a key area of focus. And I think when it comes to the roadmap for Disney's future, ESPN, as well as Hulu, and what he does with those assets right. um, are, are in the spotlight. So I, I would look there as well. And then this all, of course, comes against a backdrop where analysts actually expect that Disney Plus will have fewer subscribers now than it did at the end of last quarter. And that's wow. because, in part, because of the uh, the price hikes that they implemented. Right. That's true. It's it's not cheap. Kukun, do you see Disney going to 130 uh, because of or in spite of Nelson Peltz's involvement? I think in spite of, wow. um, and, you know, Nelson Peltz's involvement is certainly interesting. I think lights a fire under the management team, perhaps. But it's important to, to keep in mind that management already has set out a fairly, um, I think, attractive roadmap to, to improving things like putting more power into 
um, the content makers in the company and decision making in their hands, focusing a little bit more on cost cutting and even thinking about the theme parks, um, trying to figure out uh, you know how to improve the guest, guest experience, experience over there. So uh, you know, I think Nelson Peltz, um, you know, again, certainly maybe an accelerator to certain initiatives, mm -hmm. but um, you know, the, the company already has its handful, and I think they're doing everything they can. And I certainly expect to hear a lot more today after the close. What do you want them, Cut Gun, to do with ESPN? I think they. I see no reason they need to separate it. I think we're in the very, very early days of exploring the full potential of what sports streaming marketplace could look like. And, but um, as making a deal, I mean, let's put it this way, not about the merits of ESPN itself, but if they can offer that in exchange, for instance, for owning Hulu outright, you know, the art of the deal here, should they, should they do something with this leverage that they have? Um, I think the, the leverage profile is fairly manageable, especially as we see losses at direct consumer start to abate and hopefully starting next year go get to profitability uh, break even and then profitability and i certainly don't see an issue with the balance sheet where they need to have a deal and need to monetize espn to acquire the remaining balance of hulu so i don't think they need to step back from um, streaming whatsoever i think it's just more a matter of being smarter with streaming yeah making sure they're monetizing the subscriber making sure they're improving the cost structure and perhaps being a little bit more flexible with how they're allocating content and and whether or not it has to all go toward the flagship disney plus service right or can they be a little bit more creative yeah. and monetize it in other pockets i, I meant le leverage by the way in, in the sort of old school sense but i appreciate the balance sheet <laughs> remark as well because that's even more important julia quick last word here yeah, it's just really interesting because Bob Chapek, Iger's predecessor, back in August, he lowered the expectations for Disney Plus subscribers, but did say that they would be achieving profitability by 2024. And so I think there's a lot of focus right now on what Iger says about the costs and also investment in ESPN. Does he do layoffs? I'm sorry, investment in, in content for streaming for, for streaming across the board, whether it's for Hulu or for Disney Plus, and when they expect to achieve profitability for Disney Plus. Yeah, exactly. Guys, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time today, Cut Gun, and our own Julia Borston. Coming up, there's a gold rush happening over artificial intelligence, but Google's faux pas today proves not every company has the Midas touch when it comes to AI. We'll look at the divide and what it means for the future of chatbots. Alphabet shares, by the way, are still down about 8%. Plus, we're about two-thirds of the way through earnings season, but we've still got plenty of names on deck. Robinhood, Affirm, and Pepsi about to report. We'll get you set up for that. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. Red across the board, the Nasdaq down 1.3% with that Google weakness. Dow only down a quarter percent, 10-year, 364. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, 
today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. AI dominating the headlines this week, and it's only Wednesday. On Monday, Baidu announced plans to launch a chatbot. I think they're calling it Ernie. Later that day, Google revealed its answer to ChatGPT called BARD and asked all employees to participate in testing. Microsoft held its event yesterday, saying Bing and web browser Edge will now get AI updates. Shares both Microsoft and Baidu are higher this week. Uh, Baidu by 7%, Microsoft about 5%, but it's a very different story for Google. That's the week to date, down 5 but today it's down about 8% getting slammed after its chatbot gave a wrong answer in its first public demo earlier. Microsoft may seem like the early winner here, but Box CEO Aaron Levy has some words of caution for the industry, tweeting, quote, the one guarantee in tech is there will be a day that a platform shift comes and the entire industry has to reorient or die. We now have one of those shifts and no position can be taken for granted. And while everyone is worried about the implications for education here, my next guest says even there, it could have huge market potential. Let's bring in Sal Khan. CEO of the Khan Academy, along with our very own Steve Kovac. Quite a pairing, Steve. I can't wait. Welcome to you both, Sal. It's a pleasure. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think people will be very interested to hear that you're not uh, out here to demonize this technology right, right from the start. Why not? Well, I think it has a ton of potential. Obviously, folks are talking about how it can write essays for students, and uh, the education system is going to have to adjust around that. I know folks are trying to make text-based watermarks and things like that, but they're very easy to get around. You can't detect it with plagiarism detectors. So you're going to have some more proctored essay writing, but it also in introduces a lot of opportunities. You can prompt these large language models so that they can actually be a writing coach, they could be a tutor, uh, they can have a Socratic dialogue with you. Uh, so I think there's, it's going to unlock all sorts of new opportunities. I, I experimented uh, with my daughter uh, where it co-wrote a story with her and then at some point she wanted to talk to one of the characters and I said, <laughs> why not? And, and it let her talk to the character. Uh, this is this is the type of thing that would seem like science fiction even a year ago, uh, but it's now possible. And you know, I've done it with my children. It's an incredibly engaging way to do anything from writing to mathematics to science to uh, what, to, to so anything you want to work on. Those books over your shoulders there. What is their future in in this AI education world we're talking about? I think they have a very good future in this AI education world. You know, we have a, a online high school, a Con World School, that. Uh, has the students doing a lot of reading of a lot of the books that I have that I have behind me right now. And I, we are already experimenting with ways that these large language models, if prompted appropriately, can actually have a Socratic conversation with you about the chapters of these classic books that you are reading. Hmm. Uh, historically, how do you do that? You write a book report that's kind of one dimensional. And obviously, we know that uh, the large language models can already write those for you. Right. Uh, but I actually think there's ways that you can almost have a book club with it. Uh, it it's still very so, early days. There's still a lot of experimentation. This is very interesting because what it makes me think, Sal, is that the real threat is to teachers. And maybe that's why the educational system is freaking out. Well, uh, once again, you know, when Khan Academy first came on the scene, there was a fear, oh, on-demand video or personalized exercises are a threat to teacher. And we, we've always been clear, if I had to pick between amazing teacher, amazing technology, I'd pick the amazing teacher every time. And that the technology just unlocks that. You don't have to give lecture in the classroom anymore. Every student can learn at their own time and pace, but it allows the teacher to actually go up the value chain. And so the same thing is going to happen here. These uh, bots, these large language models, they can act as a teaching assistant. Uh, we've already started experimenting with them to create 
create lesson plans. Teachers hmm. spend almost half of their time creating lesson plans, sure. half of their time uh, creating evaluations for students. It can really accelerate that. And then if it, if it can act as a tutor for individual students and then report back to the, to the teacher how they're doing, uh, I think that's a boon for, for everyone. Fascinating. Okay, the giant asterisk to this conversation, Steve, is if you ask Google's new uh, Bard, <laughs> what, great. what new discoveries from the James Webb Space Telescope can I tell my nine-year-old about in their promo earlier that they ran to, in this Paris unveiling? They gave the wrong answer. They said right. it was the first images of exoplanets. And it turns out the first images of exoplanets were actually taken in 2004. So I tested it to say, okay, if I ask Playground, OpenAI, the, the Microsoft technology chat, GPT, if I ask them this question, sure enough, they came back with exactly the right answer, both to the James Webb question and to the question of when were the first pictures of exoplanets taken. So the point is, somehow these technologies have to be close to perfect if they're going to be deployed to some extent, in the way Sal's talking about, he's not just talking about facts and information, mm -hmm. he's talking about a process. But obviously, if the facts aren't reliable, that's going to be a huge issue. Yeah, it's here. one th and we're talking about education now. So obviously, that's a that's an issue there, too. But keep in mind, to, to Sal's earlier point, the pro on the product side, these both Google and Microsoft want this to touch their entire stack of technology. On the Google side, Google is huge in the classroom. Google services, Google Docs, Google True. Gmail, especially at the university level, but also in, in uh, you know K through uh, 12 as well. And so kids are using this technology. It's going to be available to them through Google Docs, through and also schools use Microsoft, of course. So what I'm curious to see is when they finally unveil that, what does it look like in Microsoft Word? How does a teacher know that their students are writing an essay in Google Docs with their own brain, or are they using a chatbot or whatever, a bard to write it for them? That is going to be interesting. Do they flag it? Do they highlight it? Sure. What, what kind of connotation or marker is there going to be to make sure this doesn't happen, to make sure it's a like to Sal's point, it's a tool, not a replacement. Sal, you want to comment on that? Absolutely. And I think you're going to see uh, the emergence of, of new applications that use these large language model APIs that put in those safety mechanisms. So, you know, you don't ban the large language model, but the students use it in a context like this. And parents and teachers maybe see the transcripts of what the students are up to so they can see if the students use it to just outright write an essay or uh, it just helped them write the essay. And ideally, you set up the prompts in an application like this so that you tell it, don't just write the essay for the student, make them do most of the work, but you are a good writing coach or whatever else. And I think if you do that, uh, this is going to have a lot of potential. And, and, and these things do hallucinate. That's the technical term for, for what they do when they make up facts and they make up links. Uh, and I don't think they're going to go away in, in the very short term. But I think in the, in the coming years, the benefits of them are going to outweigh the, the negatives for, for a lot of learners. I appreciate the point uh, at a time when we're all very quick sometimes to dismiss it or call it a fad and, yeah. and uh, talk about how bad it might be. Sal, we'll leave it there. And thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Sal Khan and Steve, as always, thank you, our very own Steve Kovac. Still ahead, if you think Wall Street banking fees are outrageous, wait till you hear about the lawyer fees for working on FTX's bankruptcy. We've got some eye-popping numbers next. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. 
Welcome back. We're off the lows, but still in the red today. The Dow's down about 100 points, and the Nasdaq is down 1.4%. The weak spot here is what we were just discussing. Google's decline today. Let's get a check on mega cap tech. Alphabet, Google's parent company, being the worst performer, with an 8% drop after that issue we just spoke about when in this demo, as they unveiled this product, uh, Bard, as they're having this big AI event in Paris, Bard's giving some wrong answers about the James Webb Space Telescope. Um, you can see investors just nervous as saying there's a lot at stake here for this AI race right now. And these little slip-ups, they're not too happy about that. A rival Microsoft, by the way, is green on the session by about half a point. Apple and Amazon are both down about 2%. Meanwhile, the cybersecurity names we don't talk about as much anymore, but they're higher after Fortinet's earnings. Fortinet is up almost 11%, the best day since May 2020, helping to boost a bunch of other names in the space, including the whole Global X cyber ETF ticker, BUG. B-U-G. See what they did there? I was going to draw a spider. That maybe would have worked, too. No, but that would be a different ETF. Anyway, still ahead, we have the action, the story, and the trade on three more names on deck with results. And my next guest says one of these stocks will never reach its former highs. The name and what to watch in all three reports next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back. We're more than halfway through earnings season, but there are still a bunch of key names set to report. Let's get to earnings exchange with the action, the story, and the trade on three names on deck right now. And these will be, I was going to say, a fun grab bag. Uh, first up is Pepsi reporting before the bell tomorrow. Shares are down into the print, but on pace for their best week since late December. Inflation and recession fears, consumers are tightening budgets, and yet they've beaten the street on revenue for five straight years. That's quite a streak. Dom Chu has our stories uh, today. Danielle Shea is direction of Opters director of options at Simpler Trading. She has her trade today. I was just so excited to say welcome back, Danielle. Welcome back. Thank you, Kelly. It's so great to be back. It's great to see you again. All right, Don, we'll start with you. Pepsi, what are you watching? All right, so grab bag. It's going to include Doritos, Fritos, and maybe some PepsiCo and Mountain Dew. Anyway, that's what consumers are looking at right now, and investors are going to be watching for the same kind of thing. So for PepsiCo, it's a stock that, by the way, hit a record high just back in December. It's down about 8% from those levels right now. Asked for what to watch for besides the headline earnings, it will be about that impact of inflation on profit margins, whether or not they were able to raise prices enough to offset some of those. And of course, the brand mix, what consumers are tilting towards with regard to packaged and snack food. But look for about $1.65 in earnings per share, $26.8 billion worth of revenues. And by the way, Kelly, if you look at the way that the stock is trading right now, the options market is currently pricing in what should be about a two and a quarter percent rise or fall in the shares. That is slightly more volatile than the last eight quarters were on average the absolute gain or loss is about one and a half percent so you're going to want to watch that for sure on pepsico yeah, back over that's why people like it uh, right now i think danielle it's a place of calm uh, during these turbulent times do you like the stock Yes, Kelly, I do like the stock. And I think especially after the move that we saw in tech over the course of January, we're going to see a rotation into Staples names. And I think that Pepsi is a great opportunity right here, primarily because we have seen Pepsi fall over the course of the past two months. That is going to provide a really nice buying opportunity. I have a key area of support on the weekly charts between $160 and $170 a share that I like for a nice buying point. And I think that if we can hold this price point, continue to have positive earnings just like they announced last quarter, then we can see the shares trade higher back up to new all-time highs. This is a good quick aside for me to ask you. I mean, how do you feel about the overall market when you mentioned this trade into Staples? 
Well, you know, when you look at the market here, we saw the pretty typical January rally and the January effect, the run into earnings. That's something that I like to trade every year. And this year it was incredibly strong. Hmm. Typically after that, we usually see a pullback, especially in tech stocks. And we usually see a rotation into consumer staples names. I think that the charts are setting up perfectly for that right now. Obviously every year can be different, but I like looking at a move into consumer staples names here, especially because we're gonna see retail earnings coming up quickly. Interesting, okay, and there are a lot of people talking about like, are we about to get this big kind of reset after the run that we've had? So that, that would certainly drive. Dom, thank you. We'll move on to talk about a firm, the buy now, pay later company reporting after the bell with a 72%, this is what makes people nervous, Danielle, a 72% rally to start the year, and yet it's still down 75% over the past year. It's actually beaten revenue estimates for eight straight quarters, but it's not expected to post a profit till 2025. Kate Rooney has more of the story here. And the shares are down 5% today, Kate. Yeah, it's so hard to follow this stock, Kelly. Like you said, if you look at year to date, it's down 75%, but or up 75% rather, but you zoom out, it's a totally different story. The thing to watch with a firm, it's something called the take rate. That's pretty much the revenue less the transaction cost. Key metric for analysts out there. You also want to keep an eye on loan loss provisions and delinquencies. That could also give us a bit of a a glimpse into the health of the consumer. Gross merchandise volume is a key metric. That really shows its overall activity on a firm, how much people are taking out in terms of those buy now, pay later loans, how much money is moving across the platform. Partnerships are big. They had this big Amazon partnership that expired a couple weeks ago. They'll want to hear commentary from Max Levchin, the CEO, on the call about that. And then Peloton during the pandemic was such a huge boost for a firm. It's actually been a drag on revenue in recent quarters. And they've talked a lot about moving away from that and sort of diversifying the partnerships there. And then finally, competition. You can't forget Apple moving into buy now, pay later. You've got Venmo. You've got all the banks. So investors really want to hear how are they going to build a moat here sure. and what's different about a firm. Great point. Danielle, I'm not sure if it's this one or Robinhood that you think isn't going back to the previous highs. Drum roll, please. Honestly, both of them, Kelly. When you're looking at a firm, it seemed like a great idea in the beginning. Buy now, pay later, you know, inflation. People needed a way in which they could buy goods and pay later, right? But everything that Kate mentioned are providing huge overhead resistance. And at the end of the day, this company is just not unique. There are so many different reasons why it could fail. And when I'm looking at the charts, to me, it has to be a short. I will say, however, though, that this stock does have high short interest, so you have to be careful with it. And on earnings, it can be incredibly volatile. Sitting at the $16 price point, it's not a great entry, but if we end up getting a move up into about the $20, $25 price point, that is a spot that I would rather get short. But at the end of the day, I think this one is going to keep going down, even if they can manage to have some sort of positive thing to say on earnings. Sure. All right. Well, that leads us right into Robinhood. We'll see if it's the same story. They're also out after the bell. They've actually had a decent start to the year as well with a 30% gain, but they're 36% off the 52-week highs, even more from the all-time highs. And what's happening with retail traders? Kate Rooney, what are we expecting to hear about this company? So the, the slowdown in retail trading is expected. They've talked about that in terms of guidance in previous quarters that a lot of people, you know, went back to work. The meme stock rally has faded, although it actually has returned a little bit this year. But their traders are just doing less. They're a lot less active than they were during the pandemic and when this company went public. Investors, as a result, are looking for revenue diversification. They want to see Robinhood move away from just those trading fees, things like payment for order flow, which are also under pressure. 
uh, for regulators. And then things like kind of the more boring side of finance, savings and retirement accounts, growth on that side and subscription revenue. So that's something traders really will be looking for. Account growth is huge. Revenue per user, that's been slowing down in previous quarters. So guidance around that will be big. And then cost cutting. This is one of the fintechs that has done layoffs in recent quarters. They've talked a lot about austerity and moving from growth to being a little more conscious on what they're spending. And you've seen that in tech and fintech especially. Right. And then the guidance overall. I mean, I mentioned the sort of rebound in some of the, the meme stocks and crypto in general. That may bode well for the current quarter. It'll be interesting to see any commentary around how much of a boost that could actually provide. Danielle? Kelly, I like this one for a short as well, but again, you do want to be a little bit careful on earnings. I will say that because it's rallied so well going into the start of the year, that is going to provide a better entry point. And as long as it stays below $15 a share where I have key resistance, I want to continue looking at it to the downside. I think that there's a significant amount of not just overhead resistance on a technical perspective, but there are just so many issues with this company between the retail trader bust, uh, Bitcoin is now rallying into resistance yet again. I think their crypto portion is going to continue to suffer. And the payment for order flow issue with the SEC is a big problem for Robinhood. They're going to have to figure out a way that they can make additional revenue. And that was the biggest, <laughs> that was one of the most important aspects of their business. Yeah. So looking at the stock, I like it to the downside. Uh, to the downside, which yeah, like it to the downside. Exactly. We don't want to scare Kate too much, Danielle, but are you sleeping? <laughs> Here and there, you know, with a three-month-old, it's it's a little bit challenging, but I'm so great to be back. Yeah, live. I love oh, it. <laughs> We're in for it. Yeah, <laughs> get ready. Thank you both exactly. very much today, Kate Rudy, Danielle Shea, for this edition Thanks, of Earnings Exchange. Now, Fed Governor Christopher Waller is speaking at a conference in Arkansas. We can bring you some headlines. He is saying the inflation fight is not over and warning rates may need to be higher for longer as inflation remains elevated. He thinks the Fed needs to keep tighter monetary policy for, quote, some time. Waller is not seeing signals inflation will fall quickly and his outlook won't change until we see continued inflation moderation. He told our Steve Leesman last month that means of six, uh, that means six months of improving data before he'll consider a pause in rate hikes. He went on to say strong employment gains are putting upward pressure on inflation, but the wage data is moving in the right direction. He also expects U.S. economy to continue growing modestly this year. Uh, looking for reaction across the markets, we can still see, you'll see the two-year about 446, not a lot there. Dow's still down about 117 points, and we'll watch it for further reaction. Coming up, if you thought the loss of billions of dollars from FTX would be the most eye-popping sums in that ongoing bankruptcy case, you might be surprised. The latest dollar amounts that are getting attention, we have that next. Welcome back. Today's hearing in the ongoing FTX bankruptcy saga was canceled this morning. But there are still new repercussions for Sam Bankman-Fried and other executives. Let's get to Eamon Javers for the latest. Eamon? Hey, Kelly, the judge did cancel that hearing today, but he issued two orders that clear the way for subpoenas to be issued to Sam Bankman-Fried, his family members, and other insiders, which means this investigation can kick into another gear as the bankruptcy goes forward. We're also waiting for word on whether the judge will appoint an examiner to investigate the FTX collapse. Now, the U.S. trustee wants an examiner in place, but new FTX CEO John Ray is opposed to it. He argues that in the examiner in the Enron case, which he worked on, wasted creditors' money spending $90 million investigating Enron, but only producing what he called very shallow results, Kelly. 
Well, meanwhile, there's a lot of focus on the lawyer fees in, in this case in particular. What can you tell us there? Well, we've got some new filings just over the past 24 hours in the bankruptcy, and they shed light on just how much the lawyers are billing as they resolve all of this. Five law firms are requesting a total of $20 million for work that they conducted in the month and a half between FTX's November 11th bankruptcy and the end of 2022. That number is probably an understatement, Kelly, because more legal spending in that time frame is likely to be disclosed in future filings. Now, Sullivan and Cromwell, the lead law firm for FTX, is billing $9.6 million just for work between November 12th and November 30th. FTX CEO John Ray, he billed $674,000 between November 11th and the end of the year. And to put those numbers in some perspective here, the Enron bankruptcy, that one didn't break the billion dollar mark in fees, but the collapse of Lehman Brothers was the most expensive bankruptcy in history with lawyers and other professionals charging an astonishing $6 billion in fees. So we have a ways to go here before FTX fees enter that uh, record territory. Kevin. Oh, boy. Uh, Eamon, thank you very much. You we bet. appreciated our Eamon Jabbers. Still ahead, the average monthly auto loan payment is now more than $700, and demand remains pretty strong as rates climb. We'll talk about the impact on auto sales and when dealers will finally maybe start running incentives again with a top industry executive next. Welcome back, everybody. What is going on with the auto industry these days? We've got supply chains coming back online, but rates are climbing. We had overbuying during the uh, pandemic. And now what? Inventories are widely expected to return to pre-pandemic levels by the end of this year. But some say it could push into 2024. And as I mentioned, higher loan rates are a challenge in terms of afford affordability. Let's bring in George Shimon now. He's chief executive of ACV. They do online wholesale car auctions that connect buyers and sellers. We're closely with the likes of Penske, Group One on the, on the used auto side. Uh, and you're here with me in studio. George, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks, Kelly. Thanks for having me. What are you seeing in terms of tightness or weakness in the market overall? I think the year has started out in a positive way. According to a bunch of third-party data sources, and at least what we're hearing from dealers, uh, January new cars sales seem to be up year over year. Really? So when you look at the new car segment, uh, as you mentioned, supply starting to come back. That's been a, a big uh, sort of uh, hole problem. in the market yeah. and problem that we needed to solve. <laughs> so as the OEMs are starting to, their, their sort of supply chain problems are starting to really uh, move on and we're starting to see cars show up. So that's one positive trend. Another um, positive trend for January that we've seen is that year over year used car sales are also slightly up. Are they, so, how is that, well, let me back up for a second. The, one of the most shocking stats from the entire pandemic is how much used car prices rose. I mean, in some cases we're talking about they doubled. So it's hard to tell what's going on. Are, are prices coming down? What's, and how do we sort of separate that from what might be going on with sales? And what does it mean for your business overall right now? Yeah, so it's, it's really fascinating, Kelly. It's one, let's, before we talk about ACV, let's look at my target customers, franchise dealers, independent dealers. These dealers are diversified businesses with supply coming in from new, supply coming in from used, and they have different options for consumers. So if a consumer has lower credit, they've got banks and cars that help sort of fill that gap. If they have a sure. consumer who qualifies for an OEM sort of package or offer, let's say a low interest rate offer from an OEM, 
then they've got a, that specific product or service for the consumer. Oh, so, yeah, meaning Ford and GM and, you know, any of the major brands. Yeah. That's right. So we, really, when we think about what these dealerships have, is many of them being large groups holding many different brands, they've really got different products that help what sort is, of this current state. What is the mix, you would say, now versus, you know, a year or two ago? We're new is still lower than uh, pre-pandemic. So, uh, so when I say year over year, it's slightly up. Uh, let's say it's up about 5% over a year. That's still low compared to 2019. So we're, we're not saying things are yet back to normalized volume of 19. But having said that, I think just the positivity of year over year being slightly up, among all the other things we're hearing in the economy, is positive. Oh, sure. And you, it makes you wonder, though, um, you know, so there has to be a normalization, I guess, going on, on, the, on the, in the used auto market. And are you seeing prices there falling? You know, do you think anyone who might have had to stretch to buy a used car. Let's say they wanted a new one, couldn't get it, so they bought a model a year or two old, but they, they paid a higher price during the pandemic. What's going to happen uh, there, do you think? Well, we've seen consumer expectations will need to be moderated, right? They've been hearing about how valuable their used cars are right. for the last couple of years. Having said that, dealers want to buy these cars. So what we're helping is helping dealers and consumers um, really on expectations. And it's a fascinating thing. You're, you're really seeing this normalization being, what's the condition of the asset? Where, which city is that car being traded in at? We're seeing cars on our platform travel four, 500 miles per vehicle, meaning traded at one dealer, wow. and it's going four or 500 miles to another market. Wow. So uh, the way, as you, you mentioned normalization, look at normalization as what's the condition of this car? Where does this car belong? Mm -hmm. What part of the country? And does the dealer have the tools and services to make sure they could put together that trade with that consumer? The, the question on my mind is, are we going to see in the auto market these shortages turn into a glut? We've started to see this elsewhere where we've seen it, um, you could say, on the, in the energy markets. Look what's happening with natural gas, uh, semiconductors, you know, chips. We've seen gone from shortages to gluts. On the auto side, are we going to go from shortages to gluts, to overproduction, too many cars, not enough buyers, and price declines? <laughs> Most industry analysts aren't predicting that with Ferrado this year. Um, so let's think about why. We, we still are coming off a massive shortage of supply. Uh, so I think it's going to be a brand by brand or OEM by OEM specific. For example, Hondas and Toyotas, we still don't have enough of them. So you still see the used car value is very high for Hondas and Toyotas. There's only a few brands where we're starting to see new aged, really, new aged inventory start to really creep up. Um, across the franchise dealers. Can you tell us who they are? Or I'd rather not throw that, anyone, fine. any brands in let, <laughs> let me pivot then and ask you one final question with the remaining time we have. Tesla is kind of outside of this whole ecosystem in some ways because they have the direct-to-consumer model, but is there anything you can glean from where you operate as to what demand and supply is like there? Well, I think one thing I can share is um, obviously Tesla's in the media quite a bit. Um, Tesla fits with a specific consumer, right? Tesla fits with a consumer who's okay with a full electric vehicle, um, a consumer full that- tag. Full price tag. Um, and that has the credit scores when they go to the Tesla website to buy that vehicle. True. So it's, think about it, it's like, check, 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 right? So let's think about consumers going to a franchise dealership. They may have low credit. Right. They may need a specialized loan. They may not want an electric car yet. We, we see actually hybrid plugins Being more popular 
than pure electric. Well, then that's good news for Toyota that they, <laughs> they need these days, I think, in pursuit of that model. George, we have to leave it there. It's great to get a little bit of a pulse check here on such a difficult market to penetrate. Thanks for your time today and for coming down. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. We appreciate it. George Shamoon with ACV. We've got the trades in burritos, bookings, and billings coming up on Power Lunch, and Tyler Matheson is already getting set for that. I'll join him on the other side of this quick break. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 